non-alcoholic, non-caffeinated drink proven to protect your body as it processes alcohol. It actually gives a safe, natural boost to your body's defenses and flushes your system of the toxin that causes your hangover. In other words, the toxin is the devil, mercy is the angel. And with mercy as your angel, you get some real health benefits and no hangover symptoms. And that fellow hangover haters is the miracle of mercy. You got to like that, huh? Now, how much mercy, the drink that is, should you have? Well, they helpfully tell us that it depends on how much alcohol you consume. But they recommend one can of mercy for every five alcoholic beverages. They also don't recommend more than three cans in any one 24-hour period. And they helpfully add that if you're drinking responsibly, that's all the mercy you'll need to have. Now, my math, I don't know about your math, but my math says that one can of mercy for five drinks multiplied by three cans in any 24-hour period means 15 drinks. And that's drinking responsibly. Wouldn't you hate to see what drinking irresponsibly looks like? Now, this sermon opening look at the cultural view of mercy is not meant at all to rag on people who drink, even those who drink to excess. That's kind of another sermon. It's certainly not to alert you to a product. None of you need to know about a product like this, I'm assuming, that can help you drink more alcohol than you should. In fact, did you ever think that with the way God designed our bodies, the hangover is the real mercy? Because God uses it to kind of slap us upside the head and say, hey, don't drink so much. The reason for this opening illustration is to introduce our theme for this morning by helping us understand how our culture views mercy, how we may view mercy, and to compare that to what the Word of God has to say about mercy. It's clear from the play on words that this company uses to market this particular product that they understand at least this much. Mercy has a divine origin. Paraphrasing their marketing pitch might sound something like this. You like to sin, but you don't like to suffer. Mercy is a gift from heaven that keeps us from hell. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, verse 23, we see mercy identified as one of the most dominant themes in the whole salvation narrative. In that verse, those who are saved are called vessels of mercy. Isn't that good? That's us. That's us, followers of Christ. We're vessels of mercy. So for me, the study of this theme began as I thought of the number of times we see the word mercy used right alongside the word grace in Scripture, in several of Paul's greetings in his letters to different New Testament churches, we see him write something like he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, where he writes to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace and mercy are so often seen together in Scripture, so I wondered, what's the difference between the two. Surely if there's two different words used, there must be some difference in their meaning. So I began to study the biblical use of these two words, and I first see how prevalent both are in Scripture. Grace, of course, is the unmerited favor of God toward us, toward his creation. Grace in the New Testament is the Greek word charis, from which we get the English words charismatic, charisma, charity, and more. One Bible dictionary defines this Greek term for grace like this. Grace, particularly that which causes joy, pleasure, gratification,
favor, acceptance, for a kindness granted or desired, a benefit, thanks, gratitude, a favor done without expectation of return, the absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to men, finding its only motive in the bounty, a bounty and benevolence of the giver, unearned and unmerited favor. Charis stands in direct antithesis to works, the two being mutually exclusive. God's grace affects man's sinfulness and not only forgives the repentant sinner, but brings joy and thankfulness to him. It changes the individual to a new creature without destroying his individuality. So God's grace is a consistent theme that we see throughout Scripture. It's especially tied to redemption. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Mercy is also a consistent theme we see throughout the Word of God. Mercy is tied inseparably to compassion and loving kindness and forgiveness. In fact, we cannot understand God's dealings with his people without having a grasp of mercy. So as I continued to ponder these themes and study them, I began to spend more time with mercy than with grace because it seems that sometimes in our study and teaching we think about grace a little bit more than we think about mercy. Mercy is a quality of the nature of God. Even in judgment and discipline, God's mercy can be seen and hoped for, for it is part of the basic disposition of love toward his people, and it directs his actions ultimately in ways that benefit his people. Mercy is a personal characteristic of care for the needs of others. The biblical concept of mercy always involves help to those who are in need or in distress. This help covers many different themes in Scripture. If we go through Scripture, we see mercy described as everything from assistance to finding a bride to God's forgiveness of sin. Because of this, many different words are used in the original languages to express these concepts. And an even wider vocabulary is found in our English translations of the Bible. For example, one Hebrew word, sometimes translated as mercy, not always, but the same word is used 245 times in the Old Testament and 127 times in Psalms alone. The translators of the Greek Old Testament often use the Greek word for mercy to translate this word, but when it's translated into English, it was translated in various ways in addition to mercy that help us understand the richness and concept of the idea of mercy. The King James Version, for example, regularly translates this word as mercy or kindness, but other English versions render it as steadfast love or loving kindness or loyalty or constant love, unfailing love, faithfulness. So when we see even secular businesses marketing a product designed to help someone escape the consequences of sinful behavior, as with the mercy drink that we talked about at the beginning of the message, we have to grant that even unbelievers have a rudimentary understanding of mercy. They have an innate, rudimentary, though often sometimes twisted, understanding of mercy. The world also has an innate but sometimes twisted understanding of justice 
and injustice. We have a natural built-in sense when something seems wrong or unjust, whether we can articulate this in a biblical way or not. But in our flesh, what we typically want is justice for everybody else and mercy for me. As I studied mercy and grace with a closer look at mercy, I began to consider how they might be communicating different things. Here's some of my initial thinking, and this was refined as I moved forward, but this is the way I started. I began by thinking, well, mercy is not getting the bad things you do deserve. Think things like punishment, destruction, death. Grace is getting the good things you don't deserve. Think forgiveness, redemption, life. Grace may include mercy as a component. In a general sense, though, mercy may not necessarily, it might, but it may not necessarily also include grace. A couple examples. A cop who pulls you over for speeding might give you a lesser fine than he could based on how fast you were going. That's mercy. A judge sentencing you to prison might give you a lighter sentence than the law allows for. That's mercy. But take the same cop though showing mercy to you by not giving you the fine that the law says you deserve, doesn't then say, but hey, I've got to give you this ticket, but you know what? I'll pay the fine for you. Now that would be grace and fiction. (laughs) And the judge, while showing mercy by giving you a one-year sentence instead of the five that he could have given to you, doesn't say, you know what? I'll do your time for you. Now, that would be grace. In a biblical sense, then, mercy means that in Christ, we don't get what our actions and attitudes have earned us, the wages of sin, which is death. That's because forgiveness is closely tied to mercy. But grace means we not only don't get what we so richly deserve in terms of our eternal separation from God, but we also do get forgiveness from sin as well as the righteousness of Christ imputed or credited or counted to us, a righteousness which we do not deserve and cannot possibly earn. So I did find some nuances of difference between how these two terms are used in Scripture, and I found some support for my initial thoughts about how they might be different. One Bible dictionary highlights the contrast between the two terms, and it seems to support the thought that there's a difference between the two. It says, contrast charis, which is God's free grace and gift displayed in the forgiveness of sins as offered to men in their guilt. God's mercy, elios, is extended for the alleviation of the consequences of sin. Grace identifies the free nature of salvation, which is unmerited and without obligation. Mercy is the application of grace and reminds us that redemptive freedom rescued us from the pathetic condition of our sinfulness. In another Bible dictionary, we read, mercy especially refers to the remission and removal of sins, grace to the saving bestowal of spiritual gifts. Dave, could you give me that, please? Thank you. Yet as I got more deeply into these rich themes of Scripture, I began to notice something. With the exception of these two Bible dictionary definitions and commentary uh, definitions that I gave you, 
both from the good sources that I like and trust, I was surprised to learn that it seemed that there was more about mercy and grace that was very similar than was very different. For example, I learned that there's no one word in the Hebrew Old Testament that carries the same depth of meaning as charis, grace, in the New Testament for God's unmerited gift of salvation. But when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, they often translated one particular Hebrew word by using the Greek word charis. And we see this word 56 times in the Old Testament. Now in Hebrew, this particular word refers to the kindness and compassion of one person toward another in an act of assistance such as aid to the poor. Isn't that what we would commonly call a mercy ministry? That's the kind of thing we would call mercy. Yet, we see the translators using the Greek word for grace to translate this Hebrew word for something more closely resembling our idea, our understanding of mercy. Here's an example of that using the New King James Version of Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31, where it reads, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word for mercy in this verse is the same word used for grace in the New Testament. Other Hebrew words convey the idea of God's grace, such as rakam, mercy, and chesed, steadfast covenant love. These words are often combined with ken to refer to the one mercy, merciful, loving, gracious God. And you see several scripture references where you see these words used almost interchangeably. So even as we see these terms used together in scripture, we can see the effort by scholars to define and even translate these terms and begin to conclude that they're way more alike than they are different. So I was quickly coming to the conclusion that we shouldn't work too hard to find differences between mercy and grace. Though there may be subtle elements, we looked at some of those that describe somewhat different things, mercy and grace are a lot more like twin sisters. And maybe that's why they're used together so often in Scripture. For example, I might tell you that my wife is beautiful. I might say she's gorgeous. I might say she's good looking. I might say she's a babe. That's 70s lingo for those of you who didn't catch that. But you get the idea. I'm essentially communicating one idea. So again, while they're not exact synonyms, they are definitely more similar than they are different. We can look at an Old Testament passage and see where this is true too. This is a place in the Old Testament where God was defining himself. He's with Moses, and here's what this passage tells us in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now, we remember that God had previously called himself, I am that I am. 
In that name, God is making himself known to Moses in the glory of his self-existence, his self-sufficiency. But here, God is defining himself in another way. He wants to make himself known to us. And what does he choose to reveal about himself? The glory of his grace, the majesty of his mercy. This is prefixed, Matthew Henry writes, before the display of his mercy to teach us to think and to speak even of God's grace and goodness with great seriousness and a holy awe and to encourage us to depend upon these mercies. They are not the mercies of a man that is frail and feeble, false and fickle, but the mercies of the Lord, the Lord God. Therefore, sure mercies and sovereign mercies, mercies that may be trusted. So these are the things that God wants us to know about him, to understand about him. He wants us to know that he's merciful. He wants us to know that he's gracious, full of grace. He wants us to know that he's compassionate, like a father to his children. He wants us to know he's faithful even when we're not. He wants us to know that he does get angry. Why else would he say he's slow to anger if he never got angry? But he doesn't fly off the handle like we do. He's slow to anger is just another way of saying he's patient with us. His love is steady and sure. He wants us to know he'll forgive us, but he also wants us to know that mercy has a timetable. And though it's new every morning, this side of eternity, there is a limit and there is such a thing as eventual justice. Right now, though, today, we are living in an age of mercy, God's mercy. Isn't it interesting in all these things God chose to reveal about his nature that the first two things mentioned are that he's merciful and he's gracious. Also, that some of these other things, like his patience, like his compassion, could almost be seen as examples of his mercy and his grace. He's a God of mercy and grace. Now, in chapter 33, the chapter before we just read, Moses had asked to see God's glorious presence, and this, what we read in Exodus 34, was God's response. What is God's glory? It is his character, his nature, his way of relating to his creatures. Notice that God did not give Moses a vision of his power and majesty, but rather of his love. God's glory is revealed in his mercy, grace, compassion, faithfulness, forgiveness, and justice. God's love and mercy are truly wonderful, and we benefit from them. We can respond and give glory to God when our character resembles his. So, as I, over time and study, determine that we don't need to see this huge dichotomy between grace on the one hand and mercy on the other, I began to ponder again the vast number of passages of Scripture where we see the word grace or mercy featured prominently and attributed to God. And I began to consider, why is that? Why do we see this so much? When something is mentioned that often, there's got to be a reason. One reason we've already noted, grace and mercy are literally a part of who God is, his very name. These things are part of God's nature, and that is wonderful news. But the reason it's wonderful news to us is not so wonderful. It's good news. It's gospel that God is a God of mercy and grace. 
but we see this theme so prevalent in Scripture for one reason. We need it. We need it. We need God's mercy. We need God's grace. Without it, we are hopelessly lost and broken. Our sin problem is unfixable, short of God's grace and his mercy. I noted earlier that we all have an innate sense of justice. We see it even in our children, don't we? Before they're taught much of anything. You don't have them to teach them to say, that's not fair. They'll say that before you teach them anything about justice. How many times have we heard or seen our little ones say that? Yet that innate sense of justice is tainted by our sin. It's there because God put it there in making us in his image and his likeness. But it's twisted, it's tainted, it's fallible because we are sinners. Most of us have an underdeveloped sense of our own individual sinfulness when seen in the light of God's holiness. Now that's partly due to our human nature, our sin nature. That's partly due to the enemy's work. He tries to blind us spiritually to the reality of our sinful state. That's partly due to our culture. We live in a culture that tells us that we're basically good. But that's just not true. We're not good. Not a one of us. Scripture is absolutely clear about that. Whether we're clear about that or not. We're a sinful race unable to keep from sin. Apart from the inward renewal of the Holy Spirit when we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Though most of us have an underdeveloped sense of our own sinfulness versus God's holiness, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was just the opposite. His sense of his sinfulness and God's holiness were, if not overdeveloped, then they were certainly on steroids. Whatever defense mechanisms that most people have to quiet that accusing voice of our conscience, apparently Martin Luther was lacking. Some people thought he was insane. In reality, he had a deeper understanding of the law than most had. And this understanding led to his seeing the truth of God's mercy and grace and our critical need for it. He really was a brilliant man. And when he applied that intellect to the law of God as revealed in Scripture, he saw things that many missed or had at least forgotten in that era. When he saw commands such as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, when he saw the word telling us to love your neighbor as yourself, Luther realized there was no possible way he was measuring up to those standards. And he knew that he never could. That led him to despair. He realized that not a one of us can truly keep God's law, not for more than a few minutes. So again, at first, he despaired over this understanding. Can you honestly say, can anybody here honestly say, you love God with your whole heart? Maybe in a surface way. But if you think that's totally true, you're only fooling yourself. Can you honestly say you love your neighbor as yourself? We don't. Let's be real here. We avoid thinking about these things like this in any real sense of depth. Now, the truth is, I would guess that most of us here love God and love our neighbor much more than most of the people out there. I really think that's true. But you know what? 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God does not grade on a curve. Surely, we might think, this must be hyperbole, just to make a point. Surely the Bible couldn't really mean what it says, that we have all sinned, that we all fall short of God's glory, that there is no one righteous, no, not one, that no one does good. But the Bible's standard is this. No one has a perfect heart. Consequently, no one does a perfect deed. No one is truly good. Let that sink in for a second, because that's the truth of Scripture. When we are confronted with the absolute holiness of our great God, we instantly recognize the truth. That's what happened to Luther. And as a result, the understanding of our absolute need for God's grace and mercy was at that point onward re-emphasized in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's think of some scriptural examples. Isaiah, for example, in chapter 6, verse 5. He was confronted with the glory of God in his holiness. And here's how he responded. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, if you read about the prophet Isaiah, you might say, he's a pretty good guy. He's a godly man. Yet a moment's encounter with the holiness of God, and Isaiah instantly recognized the depth of his own depravity. Let's think of Peter, the apostle Peter. He witnessed a miracle of Jesus in the catch of fish that almost sank his boat. And he experienced the power of a holy God up close and personally. When that happened, he didn't say, gee, Jesus, thanks for that boatload of fish. What did he say? We read in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. An encounter with God's holiness reveals our sin. And our sin reveals the great need we all have for his mercy, his grace. Mercy and grace are written about and described as the nature of God so often in Scripture because we need it so much. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We're lost for eternity without it. Yet just as often, we see the reality in his word that it's there. His grace is there. His mercy is there. It's available to us. Luther's crisis of despair ended as he wrote this. It was an understanding of how God can be merciful without compromising his justice. It was a new understanding of how a holy God expresses a holy love. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice, whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Night and day I pondered, 
until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. If you have a true faith that Christ is your savior, then at once you have a gracious God, for faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. God's grace and mercy are revealed to us for our good and for his glory. Think about this. God glorifies himself in extending mercy to us. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, we read this. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Let me say that again. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Think of this. Isaiah tells us that God waits to be gracious to us. Isaiah tells us that God exalts himself when he shows mercy to us. When we exalt and praise the Lord, we can exalt and praise him for all the good things he's done. But perhaps most importantly, we need to exalt him for his mercy. And you know what? He waits for us to seek that grace. He waits for us to seek that mercy. In Hebrews 4.16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Mercy is what we want first. Think about that. We might think of other things we need and we want, but first, I want mercy. I need pardon. I'm guilty. So my first prayer, my first cry is for mercy. A man who comes to God not feeling his need of mercy must fail to obtain the divine favor. And he will be best prepared to obtain that favor who has the deepest sense of his need of forgiveness. Amen? Let's close with this passage of scripture. It's on your bulletin cover this morning too. From 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful that though we are sinners, you are a merciful God. You identify yourself as a merciful God throughout your word. You reveal yourself as a God of mercy and grace throughout your word. And Father, we recognize our great need for your mercy. Father, we recognize that by your standard of holiness, we cannot begin to measure up, regardless of how we, good we are by the world's standards. So we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would keep us mindful on a daily basis of our need for your mercy, but also mindful, Lord God, on a daily basis that we can come to you because you wait to extend grace and mercy to us. And Father, we do pray that you would indeed be glorified as you extend mercy to us. 
that you would be exalted in showing mercy to us, Father God. We're grateful for these truths, Father. Help us to ponder them as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.